This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, I'm Scott Soschnick. And I'm Matt Bach. And this is The Sportacast. Yes, people accustomed to hearing, and I'm Eben Novi Williams. Where is he in this world, Matt? On vacation? Is it Utah? Is it somewhere out there? Somewhere at an undisclosed location. We wish not to disturb uh, his time off or whereabouts unknown. But he you mean like be the throngs of fans will like put down whatever it is they're doing and rush to his area, uh, pursuing him throughout the mountain bath pi- mountain. Like paths of the West, no doubt, I'm sure. Oh, well, he's up at like five running 26 miles for warm up. But managing editor of Sportico, Matt Bach, filling in for Edmund Novi Williams. Nice to have you, my friend. Very glad to be here. Been a long time coming, and it looks like things have been off to a great start with the Sporticast and all things Sportico right now. Audience growing at a nice clip. We do thank everybody for listening. So let's get started this week with something that happened last week, but we didn't have a chance to discuss it. Uh, to discuss it. And that is the NFL signing a data contract with Genius Sports, Matt. And most people were handicapping that that deal would go to Sport Radar, mostly because, well, not only are they the 800-pound gorilla in the room and, and often competing against Genius, but, and this was the key component here, the NFL has an equity stake in Sport Radar. So you just sort of figured they would go that way, alas... It went to genius, though. Well, and the result is they're able to acquire an equity stake in genius now as well. As part of the deal, it's obviously less than 5%, so as to avoid the regulatory issues. But it was certainly a surprise to see the league come out and name genius as its exclusive provider for uh, sports betting data um, for a contract that's going to run at least the next four years. And so as much as a surprise as this, as this was to the industry, perhaps, um, it does seem to position the league in a stronger than ever spot here going forward as sports betting becomes the new thing in, in all sports. Yeah, we've been writing about this for a few years now, and that's sort of the overall value of data. And for folks who don't get it, why is exclusivity so important? Why does it matter? Because if you are providing the betting houses of the world with data, if you can have it faster and you can certainly, if you're getting the official feeds from the league, it's going to be faster than taking it off TV or whatever video stream you're taking it from, or even if you're at the event themselves, and you have to be right. You have to make sure it's accurate. And the data houses, the betting houses, will pay for faster and more accurate. That's the value of data. And then you look at what are they doing with the data? This isn't just about sports betting. They fuel things like second screen experiences 
on media companies. So this is going to be given uh, possibly Fox, NBC, ESPN, ABC, everything we know, right? We heard a lot about streaming and Amazon has part of the package. The second and third screen experience and kids are watching games today like video games. They can learn a lot from the likes of Fortnite and even the shooter games that that's how kids want it. They're not sitting down. And, uh, and if you listen to the show, Matt, you know, I always go with my son as sort of that, that focus group of one. There Good is one not a Sunday where Jackson sits on the couch and watches a three-hour, you could insert football, baseball, basketball, so doesn't matter. He doesn't do it. He's on some sort of device looking at highlights or playing a video game so he knows all the players in the leagues, but it's not because he's sitting down and watching an entire game. You've got to find ways to reach the kids. And I think you really hit it on the head with this one, being that the data is the source code, so to speak, for all these other products that are coming out from the leagues, whether it's the betting, the second screen interaction, all of the sundry benefits that we see there associated with sports and the different properties. Now, it all stems out of this data. And to have Genius get this deal with the NFL to provide this source data, not only for the sports books, but for all of the secondary products they're offering is a, is a big long-term get that is going to have a lot of wide-ranging implications. And of course, the stock of the SPAC that Genius is coupling with shot up on the news. I mean, the NFL is the biggest uh, the biggest sports league in the U.S. And of course, in the betting world, nothing more bet on than the NFL. Uh, on the other side, though, and I wish we had BP Coffee here, my friend Brendan Coffee, our finance writer, because Sport Radar is also looking to uh, couple with the SPAC, and that's Todd Bowley's Horizon. Uh, that's that stock fell on the news that it went to Genius. And now what? Because there's an awfully high valuation of $12 billion. There is always the option for Carlson Carl, the founder of Sport Radar, to take a traditional IPO. Uh, they could maybe rise, uh, raise some pre-IPO money and, and see where it goes there. But from what I'm hearing, the market for pipes, and that's public money and private equity, I hear that's dried up. So let's see what happens now. I don't pretend to have the answer, but it's certainly interesting that dominoes fall and one thing does cause the next down the line, but we just don't know what will happen now with Sport Radar and its possible SPAC coupling. And just to give that some broader context too, you mentioned that $12 billion valuation for Sport Radar. The genius that's going public with the DMY Technology Acquisition 2 SPAC was valued at $1.5 billion. Obviously, that was before this deal was announced, but it just shows you how different in size these two companies are and kind of what an upset that was for the contract to be awarded. That is a great I'd say line for me to segue because you said difference in size. There's a great difference between the revenue generated in the NCA men's basketball, uh, basketball tournament. And by the way, that gets to use March Madness, unlike the women. Weird. True. Uh, and there, But there's a great disparity in the revenue generated from the men's tournament and the women's tournament. And you know well that the number one driver of revenue for these sports are media contracts, right? So- uh, I'm guessing that you've probably taken a look, a little look-see at Just the difference between the men and the women. Emily Karen wrote about this in a fascinating story because at the start of the tournament, we saw this disparity in the weight room, right? There was one rack of weights for the women and one of the players put it on Instagram and Twitter and then the world blew up and then uh, Dick Sporting Good was volunteering to bring them you know, workout room and facility stuff. But the men had this lavish room for workout and the women had one rack of weights, but clue me in on the differences of the media contracts and how they come to value these things. Well, they're 
completely structured as, as different deals. So Turner and CBS currently pay the NCAA about $771 million annually for the men's tournament, which exists as its own product. The women's tournament is part of a larger package of more than 20 NCAA championships, which includes things like the College World Series, um, some other secondary sport championships, but it is not parted out like that. And that deal is part of a 14-year, $500 million deal that was signed. Um, It's due to expire at the conclusion of the 2023-24 academic year. Now, within that deal, um, the women's tournament has been valued at 15.9%. But we've heard a lot of people say outside that the value of the women's tournament is is much greater than that. It's probably worth about $20 million a year. But the thing is now it's not able to be separated out from the men's tournament. So you see these stories that it's on paper as a bit of a loss, but it seems to be an undervalued uh, product in the market there that's really not being split off separately. And it begs the question, I wonder what's going to happen with the future of that contract if they're able to part these out. Because when this deal was signed, there was no such thing as digital streaming or OTT services or all the other ways to monetize uh, broadcast rights that we see today. Now, we are not here to impugn the NCAA or the member institutions. That, let, let's Never. make that clear. But they did put the numbers out there sort of to back the notion that the women don't make money, right? So the, the last year that we have, the last year where the stats are available was 2019. And according to the NCAA figures, the women's tournament loses two point eight million dollars that's the biggest loss of any ncaa championship swimming baseball diving whatever it meant lacrosse the the ncaa wanted us to know that the women's tournament lost 2.8 million dollars in 2019 the biggest loss of any ncaa championship the men you'll know according to their figures a 918 million dollar profit now that is quite sizable but you hit the nail on the head in your explanation they are not sold the same way. What would the women's tournament command if allowed to stand on its own? What kind of numbers would a streaming service, would a traditional network, maybe a combination, what sort of numbers would that do? I, I don't know. The women's tourney is given 15%, you said, of the ESPN contract, right? That's about $6 million. Bucks. That, that's right. That's $2 million more than the NIT. You know, that's the tournament where the teams that don't qualify on the men's side for the NCAA, they go to the NIT. I mean, $2 million more than that. That's not great, but this is what I do know, that a championship game on the women's side draws about 3 million viewers. And as John Skipper, the former head of ESPN, used to tell me years ago, you just find me eyeballs and I will find a way to monetize. That'll be my job. And if you're getting 3 million eyeballs, what do you think the NCAA could go out and sell that for? I'll bet you you're looking at probably 15 million or upward. That's pretty much what Emily found in the reporting too. Some of the outside sources say that that 15.9% is way undervalued and that the women's tournament could go for as much as 20 million a year. And uh, we may find out sooner rather than later. As I mentioned, this deal is due to expire at the end of the 2023-24 academic year. And we got to think that there's going to be some changes with next with what's up next in store, particularly in light of coming NIL legislation and opportunity, uh, it's really showing to be a, a strength of the female athletes there. We've seen female athletes gain in power, in influence throughout the year. Uh, we have John Patrickoff starting Athletes Unlimited with, with female athletes. I, I'm curious to see 
Who will be the first? And John has taken the first step. But will somebody else decide, yes, there is real money here. There is value here. If we can roll up female sports, women's athletes, and figure out a way to monetize, somebody somebody's going to make a killing in my estimation because the brands, and this is the really important part, the brands understand the influence that the female athletes have. And part of that, by the way, and you mentioned digital earlier, is social. Let's take just a quick peek at the social influence of the folks participating in the men's and women's Final Four. You know who Paige Beckers is? I'm sure you do. Yes, Freshman I do. star at UConn, okay? You know how many Instagram followers she has? Uh, well, I'm cheating. I have it in front of me, but oh, it's okay. a lot well, more that, than I do. That's for That's sure. not cheating. That's the Eben Novi Williams way. He <laughs> cheats and has all the things. You know, he has it all in front of him when I ask these questions. But go ahead. Tell everybody what, what she's got in followers. Well, just in terms of social media following from a marketing uh platform that we have. Paige Beckers is at 730,000 uh, followers, and that is worth approximately $382,000. Now, that's just a, a forecast there, and this hasn't been put through real market forces, but it's worth noting that eight of the top 10 college athletes in terms of NIL value are female, uh, according to this recent recent market review platform. They just have a much greater social engagement Better and it sets them better up to monetize it when the time comes to say nothing of the consumer spending, which is largely directed by women throughout the country. It makes it a very valuable opportunity. Well, if you just want to look at the final four, so you've obviously got four teams, five starters. That's 20 people on the floor for the four teams on the men's and women's side. Paige Beckers, 730, whatever, thousand Instagram followers. If you add up the 20 starters on the men's side in the final four, and we are including Jalen Suggs of Gonzaga. So Jalen Suggs and the other 19, they still do not reach the number of followers as Paige Beckers all by herself. So you, you need to know the power of the athlete and the influence they have. Why isn't somebody figuring out how to monetize these athletes? They're going to pretty soon. You know who's figured out how to monetize, though? I, you, this is another segue, Matt, Matt Bach. You know who figures Go how to on. monetize? The folks over at Arcto Sports Partners, our friends Ian Charles and Doc O'Connor, former MSG CEO, because tell the world what they did uh, last week. Well, they wasted no time in jumping into the opportunity for private equity to invest in NBA teams. And it was announced that Arcto's uh, was taking a share of the Golden State Warriors organization at a valuation of $5.5 billion, which actually outstrips the Sportico valuation prior to the deal of, of $5.2 billion. But if you could kind of frame that up, Scott, and what that means in terms of ownership structure and new trends in the NBA and how quickly it seemed that this deal came into place. Well, first, I'm going to let you have it for the way you just framed it as it was announced. Ain't nothing announced, Matt Bach. We broke the story. Nobody was announcing anything. <laughs> well, it was announced by us. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It, was disclosed, well, it, it was trumpeted by us that the folks Well, bookended, too, while we're at it, the uh, genius NFL deal was the same thing. It was a busy week in the Sportico world, and these two came out uh, with good news for everyone around at the top. But, yes, it was a broken deal by Scott Soschnick in particular, about this Arctos investment in the Warriors. Yeah, they took 5% of the club at a, at a $5.5 billion valuation. And we believe, because not all of this stuff gets disclosed, and we know the, the NBA 
had altered its rules to allow for private equity ownership. We know they had a, a deal with with Dial for a while, but we're not aware of any investments yet across the league by Dial or any other entities. So we believe this is the first private equity investment in an NBA team since those rules were changed. Um, and at last we checked, Arctos had about a billion dollars in assets under management. So you know they're not done yet. Their stated goal is to spread the money across multiple teams, multiple leagues. So not a bad place to start with the Golden State Warriors. But the private equity era, we should call it, it's here now. It's a reality. And the question remains, what is going to be the effect, the impact? Do you? We don't know who sold the shares, by the way. Sometimes it's limited partners. It could be a managing partner just, just taking some money off the table. That we do not know. But what we do know is especially probably uh, accelerated by COVID and the losses that teams incurred, that they need capital in the marketplace. You had plenty of LPs who were trying to get out and couldn't because the asset values are so darn high, even with COVID. You have capital needs of managing partners and they're out there making capital calls, not where you want to be. So private equity uh, is now into the four major sports in the US. Let's not forget CVC owns Formula One, CVC looking at a piece of the San Antonio Spurs, also of the NBA. What do you make of it, Matt? I mean, where where do we think we're going with the private equity and major U.S. pro sports? Well, this definitely has the feel of the start of a trend. As you mentioned, it's the opportunity for these private investment to own shares and up to as many uh, as many in the NBA as of five teams. Um, no group can own more than twenty percent of a single franchise, and no NBA team can have more than thirty percent of its shares owned by private investment. But again, we can expect to see this spread around a little bit. These, these private equity investment groups can own shares in as many as five teams. We've seen this model already, particularly with European soccer, and you can only think it's going to expand, particularly as some of these smaller market teams are in a bit of a cash crunch post-pandemic. Um, the NBA has kind of been on the forefront of this opportunity. Of course, the one outlier here is the NFL, which has its existing ownership structure does not allow for a thing. In fact, individuals have to be the owners there. But I got to think that this kind of news, it just feels to me like the start of a trend that we're going to see in the year to come. Yeah, we knew MLS was also looking at changing the rules to allow for PE infusion. Uh, here's my immediate takeaway, because we've seen a couple of transactions now during the COVID era. We saw the sale of a minority stake of the Boston Celtics at no discount. And one of the current owners, Steve Paliuka, actually absorbed the shares that were for sale from Jim Pilata. Uh, And now you've got this. And certainly there was no LP discount. Normally an LP stake would go for anywhere 10 to 40% less, mostly because you have no control and no say, no governance say. Well, we're not seeing that here. As you said, our valuation had the team at 5.2. If anything, because they were in on the Warriors, there was a bit of a premium placed on this franchise for a 5% stake. That bodes very well. By the way, this all happened as the NFL re-upped its media deals, and we know those numbers went through the roof. We've heard some talk that the NBA is now looking forward to its next TV deal. Those numbers also seem to be much higher than the current. So with the media valuations going up, with Amazon now paying a billion dollars for Thursday night football, showing itself to be more than just a casual observer in sports broadcasting, in live rights. You have to figure next time around down the road, 
more bidders equals more money. You can see why people would be bullish. Oh, by the way, we open, we open this up with genius in sports betting and the monetization possibilities there. And I have to take a breath, Matt Bach. But you can see why owners and investors in these teams are bullish in the future of pro sports. Absolutely, without a doubt. And that kind of, to it, on the whole, looks like this this sort of opening up the platform. In the past, all these franchises and organizations were very much a boutique investment, kind of a one-off game, sometimes a money loser. And it kind of brings us to our next topic here and how these teams have expanded so much beyond just the the group of guys playing the game on the court or on the field to complete multi-holding holding companies with as a platform, as an entertainment media platform. And I got to think that um, Jacob Feldman, who had our, our profile look at monumental sports and Ted Leonsis uh, towards the end of last week is a great example of that. And it's kind of a, a good way to look at the way that these teams are really branching out and diversifying their offerings in terms of total entertainment. Yeah, as you know, on this on this very podcast, I all the time espouse that these teams are not mom and pop sports organizations anymore. The teams themselves are the tent poles for everything else that goes around it. And that can be real estate, it can be media, it can be finance, it can be tech. And you're seeing more and more franchises, Harris Blitzer, Dodgers with Elysian Ventures, that they're investing in companies that they utilize in the sports team, and then they utilize the the popularity of the team to then scale beyond sports. I mean, if you look at just what Ted Leonsis has not Monumental, you've got Caps, Wizards, Mystics, Team Liquid, and I may even leave something out. I'm just rattling off here. They've got a stake in NBC Sports Washington, the streaming service, Monumental Sports Network, the Capital One Arena, some other venues. Uh, his revolution uh, growth has investments in DraftKings, Clear, Sport Radar, speaking of which, uh, alongside Michael Jordan and Mark Cuban. Uh, he says, Ted says, look at these things as SaaS services. Their software, you know, as service here, they're not just sports ventures. Everything right now, and Ted is the chairman, by the way, of the NBA's media committee. Everything right now, digital, digital, digital. He wants the NBA to be a digital first league with some buildings on the side where they stage some events. Remember that. That's where he thinks the world is headed. And again, if you use my guy, my 11-year-old sitting at home, he's darn right. That's how you're going to reach him. I thought one of the most telling parts of that profile that that our own Jacob Feldman wrote was that Zach Leones, as Ted's son, uh, I believe it was in describing monumentals set out to the, their investors, that one of their strongest areas of growth has been business intelligence. So not only are they finding these new avenues and solutions, but they're able to offer them to other teams, other corporations. It really is a, a SAS, like a software as a service company. Now, you did mention the brick and mortar. And let's not forget that the Monumental was the first NHL slash NBA team to have an actual sports book in the building. And they expect to be doing huge business out of that. It's a William Hill enterprise down at the arena in dc the name of which escapes me now this week as it changes all the time but they are planning to expand to a thirty thousand foot facility right there that's going to be open to the street um and then to furthermore use the arena in the future to showcase large events uh while even while the team's playing therein may be out of town so just that one little sports book i think it's only able to operate in a two block radius in the district is already taken in a ton of bets 
for the district. So they are in on brick and mortar in that aspect, but it's really a, it was a fascinating profile to see the whole plethora of offerings from Monumental and how it kind of is a harbinger for things to come. Yeah, if I was looking at the model, I'd say that Monumental is more Amazon than anything else. And by the way, you said you forget the name. I'm so old. I used to go to the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland. So I know oh, you're you familiar go. with the area. Like, I'm so old. I used to see Patrick Ewing, you know, play college basketball there. That is old. But there's also the, yeah. Mon- the Mongolian barbecue downtown that was near the U.S. Is that still I around? To, I don't know, but I used to go there, but they cook it on the anvil. So oh, yeah. sometimes a good decision, sometimes not <laughs> such a great decision that back before I went to the sporting event. But the, that's that's what comes to mind. And of course, Old Ebbets Grill, because that's a standby. If you go to D.C., I got to get some oysters or something at Old Can't Ebbets miss it. Grill. Well, they got a massive Clyde's down, down, downtown, too, as part of the same restaurant group. And uh, they, they don't miss much there in, in terms of opportunity. There you go. Well, so. You don't miss much if you listen to this show. Matt Bach, what are you on the Twitter? You what, at Matt Bach? I am at Matt Bach right there. Yes, sir. I am Scott Soshnick. You can find me on Twitter at Soshnick. This show is the Sportacast. You can find it at Sportacast. I got to take care of our social media guru, Cora Veltman, because she makes me say that every time. Sportacast is the hub of what will soon become the Sportacast Podcast Network.